Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on Twip, photographers to turn tattletales by law, new tech from Adobe, and USA Today's Jefferson Graham joins us. All that and more on episode number 148 of This Week in Photography. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 60,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash TWIP. And we are back for another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, we have uh, a little bit of the old, I guess we could call Joseph old, but, you know, he's a he's a longtime host now since he's been on for a while. And a couple of months so, and now I'm old, huh? You are old. <laughs> You're putting you on the shelf. And uh, someone who was on, well, a regular on TWIP for a while, but then dropped off for a bit and is now back, Mr. Aaron Mailer. Aaron Welcome Hello. back. Hello. Where where you been? Glad to be here. I have been um, up to my eyeballs and the other aspects of my life here as a system administrator at a small college. It's been a really busy few months for me. So I, I bet it's uh, going to be crazy again toward the end of this week, and then hopefully nice and quiet this summer. That's cool. Have you been shooting a lot? Um, I have. It's been mostly personal stuff uh, last couple of months. Uh, a few things up on my blog lately. Some. Uh, little travel photography, low-key kind of stuff, Colonial Williamsburg, which I absolutely love, uh, Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia, a few things. Uh, totally retooled my online presence in the last couple months, so cool. if you haven't been to halfpress.com in a while, it's got a whole new look to it. Oh, what did, what did you use? Uh, you know, I went with a graph paper press. Um, hey, that's what uh, I'm using on my blog. Like, that's awesome. Yep, I, you're the one that turned me on to that. Oh, so, very uh, cool. Again, as a sysadmin, I have all my own servers and everything here, so you know, I, I tend to kind of roll my own in-house, but... Okay. Um, but oddly enough, I split all my galleries uh, into Zenfolio, hmm. um, which is kind of a new move for me. But it's because I use it for my online sales, uh, sales of imagery for events that I do and so on. And I'm, I'm really liking what I'm seeing so far. It's going to get its real test here in the next couple of weeks. Now, are you doing any slideshows on your on your blog or is it static imagery? Yep. I do. Um, embedded both on uh, on the main blog page itself at the top. And I rotate the imagery out a little bit from time to time. But I try to keep a selection that kind of shows the... Uh, a little more dynamic nature of, you know, that I do events, I do, you know, all different types of things. So a little taste of all those types of things. Um, and there's actually a longer slideshow on the Zenfolio portion. But uh, the goal here is to kind of glue these together so tightly that you don't think too much about it actually being two different sites or services. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to kind of run it as one unified entity. And that's that's kind of what I went for with my blog as well. I wanted uh, one seamless sort of experience where you could just click on gallery and get the little pop-down hierarchy and go in right. and find what you want and still remain in the same sort of experience. But the right. problem the problem I'm having on my blog right now that I'm I'm – I'm trying to solve. I don't know if you'd call it a problem, but my galleries are driven by Slideshow Pro, which is Flash driven, which looks great, 
you know, as long as you can see it. But then when I try to look at my site on my iPad or my iPhone, I get a blank page from, you know, where my galleries should be. So right. I'm looking for something that will either intelligently swap that out on the fly when it detects a, an agent that can't play that kind of media or yeah. replace the gallery with some sort of HTML5 solution. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I just need, I know I need to do something. I'm wondering how, how did you solve that, Aaron? Um, in my case, the, the graph paper stuff is actually HTML5. Uh, mm-hmm. So those play okay um, on the iPad. They're a little bit, um, they hitch a little bit in the transitions. It's not the smoothest thing in the world. Um, it's fine on a regular machine. Yeah. Uh, and you know what, on the, um, on the, other side, I've actually, of course, got you know some flash issues to deal with there. So you know, I'm looking into some of the same issues that you've got. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, we I think it was on the last show, um, a flash in the pan. We were talking about just that, just that that particular issue and how photographers need to deal with. You know, do you support both? Do you do one? And in the end, it's you know what what can people what will people use to see your site, you know, or what will most people be using to see your site and you need to support that or everything. Now, Joseph, what are you, you're using, what are you using right now for, for all your sites? Everything is still uh, based in Squarespace and the images are all hosted by SmugMug. Um, um, there's definitely some flash issues out there. Uh, the SmugMug is not flash based until you try to play a slideshow and then it goes flash. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but everything that's on my site now, even though it's hosted by SmugMug, it just shows up a static image. So, um, I don't have any rotating slideshows or anything like that to contend with. And then the video is all hosted out of YouTube because they put out uh, put it out of both uh, you know H.264 and as Flash. So yeah. So any any immediate plans to to change that out to HTML5 or or switch anything on there? Or are you just going to well, let no, it ride? Well, no. The only thing on my site that doesn't load on an iPad or an iPhone right now is this little rotating um, slideshow of my feet. I've, I've mentioned that before. My little feet around the world thing, and that is the only thing that's Flash. And actually. Um, the uh, Squarespace has just put out some new widgets. One of them is a, a Flickr widget. And so I haven't tried it yet, but if that works, then what I'm going to do is, uh, st- is switch my feet slideshow over to that and then have that on there so it's uh, no longer Flash. Oh, that's cool. And then you'll just drive the whole content back in from Flickr, like presumably just create sets that'll be... Just for that little that little slideshow. Okay. Basically, the way I have that slideshow thing set up, it's through Google, it's through Picasa, and which is a flash. The, the slideshow that it puts out is flash. And basically, I can take a picture with my iPhone, send it to an email address, it automatically gets added to the rotation, and immediately it just shows up in the slideshow. So if I can do the same thing with, um, with Flickr and the, the Squarespace widget, then you know, great, I'll be happy. Yeah, it just seems you know it seems like all this stuff is just too complicated. You know, I mean, it, it's great and it's fun. I mean, we're all geeks and we like to tinker with all that stuff. But you know, I would I would hazard to say that a lot of photographers, maybe most photographers, don't want to get into the all. Okay, I got to wire this up through Flickr and then bring this no, in and HTML five and I just. I just want things to work, you know? I just yeah. want to be able to put images on the web and let people see them in every single device possible. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> no, it's not. And you know what? You do get that. You do get that out of Squarespace directly. Um, you know, my girlfriend, Alenka, her website, um, alenkadesign.com, is all Squarespace, and it has an image gallery in it that's completely Squarespace hosted, and it looks great, right? I mean, there's yeah. no fancy slideshows, but it works really well. It's extremely effective, and the site looks really clean, and that is all Squarespace, and it's really, really easy to set up. The only reason that I've added the SmugMug um, segment into mine is because I wanted to have 
links off to larger galleries, yeah. right? And, and I have a direct connection from Aperture into SmugMug because it really easy to upload my pictures. There's watermarking features. There's a lot that I can do in SmugMug that I really like and you know, sales, not to mention image sales, right? So you can go to my blog, click on a picture that you like. It'll open larger, take you to SmugMug. You can buy it for the ones that are for sale and it makes it really easy that way. But you don't have to go that far. You certainly can do everything within Squarespace. So. Yeah, yeah. And in just... You know, just one thing on top of that, AlankaDesign.com, Alanka's website, she is a really good designer. So I would imagine she did not use the stock, everything. She probably customized the whole thing, right? You know, not that much because she's not a, a HTML geek by any stretch. So yeah. she pretty much used the custom widgets that are in there. Um, used the, the standard widgets that are in there, just made them look clean. Very cool. All right. Um, yeah. All right, let's take a quick second to give a nod to our sponsor, Audible. Uh, we're brought to you by them. They're at audible.com. They're the internet's leading provider of audiobooks, and they've got more than 60,000 downloadable titles to choose from across all types of literature. And uh, they've even got versions of uh, many New York Times bestsellers. So listeners of this podcast can, uh, can check out a free audiobook of your choice. Um, and I know, Aaron, uh, you're... The last time we spoke, you were uh, you were digging into audiobooks pretty rapidly. Are you still in there? Oh, I've been at it for years. Um, I've just been uh, wrapping up. I've wrapped up two audiobooks here just in the last couple of weeks, and uh, one of them I'd really highly recommend today. If you want a recommendation for a book, um, uh, it's called The Big Short: Inside the Doomsday Machine, and uh, it is the first book uh, aside from a really fantastic This American Life uh, episode a year or so ago that kind of put some of the economic meltdown in context. Um, this book does a fantastic job of really kind of explaining what happened. And it, it tells the story through a number of small investors that were kind of sounding the alarms, you know, of what was coming uh, around 2008 with the, the whole mortgage crisis situation. Yeah. Um, and following a couple of guys who actually benefited from that in a lot of ways. I mean, not in a, in a super evil way or anything, but uh, they kind of had their finger on what was going on and figured out uh, how these credit default swaps and so on work. And these are terms I've been hearing like crazy for a couple of years, but it's hard to wrap your mind around them. And uh, this book does a fantastic job of really giving you a feel for what that's all about. And it's also, oddly enough, it's a very entertaining book. I mean, it's it's laugh out loud funny in parts, too, um, with that author. So not super long, um, but, uh, you know, a good few hours of... Uh, Good information, and I couldn't I couldn't stop listening when I was playing. I mean, I just kept finding excuses to, uh, to pop in my earbuds and you know listen to a little more. Yeah, you know one of the one of the the cool things I like about the this audio audio books like like Audible books um, is the ability for them to remember where you were and where you like. For example, you're listening to like a seven hour long book and you get to right. hour three and you stop. You do a bunch of other things on your computer. You go back or on your phone or whatever, and you go back. And it'll pick up right where you were. And then secondly, the cool thing I like is, and this was the like the little extra push, is if you sync between sessions, um, it'll remember, like if you pick up that book on your computer that you were listening to on your phone and you hit play, it'll queue up to the spot where you where you left off on the other device across all right. your devices. It, it, do you use that feature a lot, Aaron? I use it absolutely constantly. Um, my computer at home, I spend a lot of time at my desk. If I'm working on something where I can, I'm not so focused that I can expend the energy to, you know, to concentrate on the book, I'll be playing it at my desk itself. Uh, or if I'm just doing something in the room where I want that, that audio to listen to. And then, of course, I'm going to go get in the car a little while later. So it's a quick sync to my, uh, to my iPhone and I'm playing it in the car. 
Um, and then uh, once again, sync to the iPad and I'm in the kitchen with the iPad and listening to it in there, or I'm streaming to, you know, to one of our, uh, little airport expresses, um, with audio output on it. So I absolutely sync constantly between at least three portable devices and, um, and I'll go practically mid sentence in the book from one to the other as I'm going. Now, are you, are you using your, I, I know before the show you held up your new iPad there. Are you using mm-hmm. that at all to, to listen to any books? Oh yeah, yeah. I, in fact, this uh, the book I just mentioned, the Big Short, was one of the first audiobooks actually that uh, was on my iPad, and uh, like I said, I was using that quite heavily there because I would listen here in my office, in my studio here at home, or in the car on the iPhone. But when I say was in the kitchen or on the other side of the house, I'd prop the iPad up on the counter while I was working in the kitchen and just keep playing the audio. So there's almost no break, you know. Especially with a like the Big Short was such a gripping book for me yeah. that uh, you know I really. I kept syncing so I'd have one fitting device, you know, near me in each situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think like for me, I tend to listen to you. You listen to that, that the really smart stuff on there, Aaron. I know. Uh, but I, <laughs> I tend to listen to, I'm more of a nonfiction kind of guy. So I listen to lots of how to and business books and things like that. And the latest book that I found is from a company that I really admire, uh, 37 signals, the, the makers <laughs> of a piece of software, online software called Basecamp. Well, they released a piece, uh, or a book called Rework. Um, and they did a pretty interesting thing. They released it. You can you can download a PDF from it online and, and read it if you like that sort of thing. Uh, but you can also download the audiobook from it and pay for it. I think the PDF is actually free, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but the audiobook is not free. You can download that and listen to it, which I, I prefer because, like, driving all the way up here to Petaluma, I can, you know, get through a fair amount of it. But the book is really cool because it goes into things like uh, just how they built 37 Signals as one of the next generation sort of businesses in terms of having distributed employees around the planet, manage every, managing everything online, communication, um, very logical structures, how meetings are evil, and you know, especially those evil status meetings that you have every Monday. Um, all, all those meetings are, are basically evil, and it's just, you know, they use some, some choice words in there to describe what those meetings are. Uh, right. But uh, yeah, basically they're just saying they're unnecessary and they're time waste, and you know they're just lots of positioning for people who sh- really should be working. So it's an interesting, it's a really interesting, very frank, very cutting edge, and very easy to listen to book. It's very fast paced, and when you're listening to it, you may get a lot of oh wow, yeah, that's that's actually my job. <laughs> so yeah, so I would definitely recommend uh, pulling that down the PDF which isn't that expensive um, or get the audible book for it, which is, uh, which is really good. Cause the narrator is actually, actually really, really good. And that's, uh, you know, some narrators, Aaron, as you, you probably know, you, you, you listen to them and you're like, you know, I can't listen to two hours, three hours, six hours of this person. Uh, but some of them you actually are actually really entertaining and you wish were reading all of your audiobooks. So as much as I love to read, I have to say that, uh, a good narrator, uh, really just some books, uh, there's some books I've read some years ago that I've then gotten the audiobook and re-listened to them because the narrator brought another whole dimension to it. Yeah. yeah. And, and you mentioned with the PDF there, uh, and we'll go deep into this, but it, it has occurred to me before. One thing I would love to see as odd as it sounds is synchronizing between like a PDF copy or an ebook copy and the audiobook. I would love to have a synchronization there. And the reason I say it is because I get hooked on an audiobook and I go to bed at night and I want to read for a bit. I wouldn't mind reading a few more pages of what I've been listening to. And because when I'm reading, I can fall asleep okay and not lose my place. But if I fall asleep listening to an audiobook, you, know, yeah. you wake up three hours later. And, yeah, and they're reading to your subconscious, so, right? <laughs> yeah, but almost like a sync between the media. But yeah. 
anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, how would that work? Would you like, like, say you're you're listening and then it stops and then it just sort of highlights the word that you left off at, or it could be on the page where you left off. I mean, yeah. again, I could. It's going to require some some hybrid work on the whole publishing side of it, but yeah. um, during the audio recording, but I, you know, it could be done. Yeah, someday. No, I, I I I totally agree, and I love that whole hybrid model of having. Um, just having the option of actually reading, you know, when you don't want to put the headphones in or whatever, and actually when you want to tune the world out, put the headphones in and go mow the lawn and, and, and continue the book. So, you know, so I would definitely suggest folks to, to head over to audible.com and check it out. Um, and to get that free audio book of your choice, you can, uh, just head over to audiblepodcast.com forward slash twip. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash T-W-I-P. All right, let's jump into the news, guys. Uh, the first story that we're going to talk about is um, Adobe has released the Lens Profile Creator. Now, we talked about it. We talked about this, the, the feature that they, they released in CS5 before in uh, Adobe Camera Raw, but I think the way, the, the way that I understood it was there was a preset number of lenses already in that you could choose from. Say, for example, you had a 17-millimeter or a 12-millimeter lens, and it would look at that lens and, and correct the distortion or or try to correct the distortion or vignetting or whatever chromatic aberration that that lens created. It would do it in software to give you a much better rendition of it. But it looks like with this this lens profile creator, you'll be able to profile your own lenses if, if for example, one of the exotic lenses that you have is not in the feature set or in the, in the list of lenses that Adobe supports out of the box. Now, uh, Aaron, I want to throw this to you again. I know you... Mm-hmm. You shoot a lot, and you you're you're bouncing between lenses all the time because, like you said at the beginning, you're doing anything from events to weddings to portraits right. to all this stuff. Now, would you find yourself using these lens profiles like in, in CS5? Absolutely. In fact, when it was announced with CS5, um, you know, I, I immediately started hoping that it was actually tied to Camera Raw and would be in, in Lightroom three because yeah. I, I pretty much live in Lightroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was thrilled to hear that was the case. It's not in the beta, but we'll have it in the final release apparently. Yeah. Um, and the first thing I went and checked out last night, I got really curious because they, they say that this profiler also opens up a community you know, for sharing profiles. You can upload the ones you create and share with others and so on. Mm. So my first thought was, does this need to be an absolute lens and camera body combination? Um, and the general discussion I've seen, and I won't know until I try this hands-on, but the general discussion forums that I followed to try and answer that question seem to indicate that as long as the camera that is profiled on has a uh, equal to or greater um, uh, size, uh, maybe full frame versus, you know, crop factor like 1.6. Mm-hmm. Um, the larger one will work for the smaller camera. And for instance, my, the two bodies that I have with me all the time are, you know, a 5D Mark II and, um, I frequently have like a 30D with me as a, as a backup camera as well, which is, is not a full frame camera. But in theory, if I profile a given lens on my 5D Mark II, that profile should work perfectly on my 30D, but not vice versa. Yeah. Um, so I'm really curious to try that out, to say the least. And especially, um, you know, I do want to do corrections because uh, like full wide 24 millimeter on, a, on my um, 24 to 70, for instance, does have a, you know, a tiny, bit, tiny bit of barrel distortion to it that I'd love to have taken out of there automatically. Yeah. Now, now, uh, Joseph, you're, you're the aperture expert on the web or on the, on the site, you know, especially with apertureexpert.com, your website. So... I don't presume that you're deep diving deep into uh, CS5. Now, do you, 
with that said, in Aperture, are there any third-party plugins or anything right now to replicate this feature? So Aperture users that don't want to go into CS5 or, or plunk down the money for Photoshop CS5 or, or don't want to go into Lightroom can do this sort of lens correction? Um, it's a good question. I think that there are some dis- some kind of distortion correction tools out there. Um, I haven't actually played with them myself. Certainly nothing that goes this deep where you have an individual lens profiled. Um, but you know, if you are using uh, Photoshop, then obviously it's, a, it's an easy switch out with uh, just open an editor to go straight to Photoshop. But yeah, if you don't want to make the investment, um, that's something I'd have to do a little bit of digging on. I'm pretty sure, like I said, there is something out there, but certainly not to that extent. It's an interesting idea, and I really would like to play with it because uh, for me, a lot of the inherent lens distortion is what makes a particular lens interesting. Now, obviously, there's times where you've got a really wide shot and you just want it to be wide and straight, and so the correction would be great. But I'm wondering, and maybe you know this, Aaron, can you dial in the, the correction, like not make it perfectly straight, but just take some of the distortion out so we kind of go you know, split the difference go somewhere in between? Is that something you can do with this uh, technology? You know, I, I couldn't say for sure. I would think that would certainly be a possibility. I mean, there's bound to be a certain amount of adjustment and tweaking. I mean, from what I gather, you uh, you print one of several um, uh, grids or checkerboard patterns that you shoot, and, um, and it, it works from that. So I, I would guess that you might have some, you know, knobs and mm-hmm. dials there essentially to to maybe push it a little one way or the other. But, uh, yeah. you know, I couldn't really say for sure yet. Yeah, interesting. It's, it's curious, too, that you have to print out your own grids because if you don't have it perfectly true, right? If you're not holding the grid perfectly straight, if you're on a little bit of an angle, it seems like that would completely mess up your profile. And you run the risk of all these profiles floating around out there that aren't quite right. Um, right. I, mean, I, you know, I don't know anything about this, but it just seems that that would be the way if you have that angle uh, not perfectly flat, then you're going to have a, a, an incorrect profile. So it seems kind of strange that Adobe wouldn't just create the profiles. It's not like Canon or Nikon or whatever wouldn't ship them you know, a bucket load of lenses to generate the profiles on. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, maybe not for all of the extreme you know, one-off, you know, there's only five in production kind of lenses out there, but certainly for the majority of them. Yeah. It well, maybe like they're experimenting with, with crowdsourcing, you know, push it out to the crowd, mm-hmm. let them, let the crowd create the, the best product possible and, and feed itself, right? Yeah, maybe. And the exit, the exit data is inherently going to, you know, pack everything in there they'd want to know about the lens combination, the body combination, all the parameters mm-hmm. and everything. So, yeah. you, you know, that's got to be part of the profile process. So right. on this, so on this, this, this whole, this, this adds another layer, right? So now we've got, you know, for photographers, you got to make sure your your uh, your computer display is calibrated. If you're scanning, make sure that's calibrated. Your printer needs to be calibrated. Um, now we're looking at profiling your lenses. Let's make sure your sensors clean. Let's make sure your lenses are clean. Do we put filters on the lenses? Do we not put filters on the lenses? On and on and on. With the with the this lens profile creator playing devil's advocate here. Do photographers, I mean, yeah, of course, yeah, if you want to get really meticulous and care about every little, you know, about your images to the to the nth degree, of course. But when it comes down to, like, just getting your butt out of the seat and out into the real world and taking images, I, I just, I, I just, like, I just get worried that photographers are like, okay, here's another thing that I need to get my brain around. Now, you know, first, I just want to shoot. Now I got to... I got to learn about light and exposure and composition and all that. But now I have to go start profiling my lenses if I want to be a real photographer. Should they, I mean, should, should the average Joe photographer that is, you know, that's not doing architectural work, should they care about this or, or should they be jumping in, you know, with both feet because this is, you know, the best, best thing since sliced bread. I think it's, it's just another tool in the arsenal, right? You don't want to have everybody's pictures looking the same. 
right? Then what would set one photographer apart? So it's just another tool that you have. You know, I may take a photograph of something with a 24 millimeter lens and like the distortion or use the distortion to my advantage. Someone else takes the same picture of the same object and decides that the horizon should be perfectly straight. So it's, it's just, it's up to you. Yeah. It's just another tool. Yeah. Aaron, where do you fall on that? Should, should amateur and advanced amateur photographers be, uh, be cracking their brains open to get this new tool in there? I mean, on the one hand, uh, photography certainly survived to this point in history without it. Um, but, uh, <laughs> there's been times when I really, really, you know, wanted to have a little bit of correction in there and I didn't feel like trying to do it manually. So, uh, I, I agree with Joseph on there. Um, it, it's, it's another tool in the arsenal, you know, take it as far as you want. To tell you yeah. the truth. I mean, if you really want to get that deep, great. When you need it, it's there. I don't see myself, um, you know, doing this. Of course, I, I gather it's going to be fairly automated. I mean, once I have these in there and looks at the EXIF data, it's probably going to apply it to my images automatically unless I tell it not to or, or vice versa. So, yeah. That was gonna that was gonna be my question for you, Aaron, because I know you're fairly meticulous about. Well, you are too, Joseph. But Aaron, I know you're the in, you have the engineering brain. So if anybody's gonna implement this this technique, it's gonna be you. So you're you're kind of on a wait and see, or or use it as a as needed sort of technique. Um, I'm let's just say I'm excited that it's coming because <laughs> this this really does appeal to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Next story. Fact, uh, just to, go ahead. Go ahead, Joseph. Go back, just to re- pull it back full circle, I took a quick look on um, on the Apple website, and there are two plugins out there for lens distortion correction. Uh, one called Fixed Lens, and the other called Lens Fix. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently, apparently there was a shortage in the dictionary when it came to naming these things. But uh, yeah, Lens Fix and Fixed Lens. So you can check those out. They're both listed on uh, on Apple.com/slash/aperture. Cool. You should you should write up a little blurb, uh, uh, Joseph, on your on your website on the on your. I may blog. have to do that. You know, what would be really interesting is to compare it to the the real tool in uh, in in Lightroom or in um, Photoshop. So I have to get my hands on CS5 and then run a few tests on them. Well, you don't have CS5 yet. What's the matter with you? Well, you know, my friends at Adobe haven't sent me one yet. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of mine. So you know, I'm saving. You know, a nickel a week. One day, hopefully, before CS6, I'll have it. So. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, the The next story up is uh, a Los Angeles-based photographer is facing criminal charges. This is an interesting story because this this, this calls into uh, into question lots of things, like just journalist journalistic integrity or journalistic shielding or whatever. But this guy did a photo story on some graffiti artists, apparently, and the cops nabbed him because he was witness to a crime. Now. Can they do that? <laughs> I don't know. Can is that is that legal? Like if you're if you're documenting something and not participating in it, does your the fact that you're there mean you're complicit in the crime itself? Aaron, you know, I've been ever since I saw this go in the show notes. I've been thinking about this story off and on and trying to figure exactly where I, I stand on it. Um, I know I, I can think of all the documentaries I've seen where where the 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 documentarians were with people you know conducting crimes it was it was what the documentary was about it was how you saw it firsthand and and clearly no one you know the the person creating the documentary for instance was not you know arrested and tried later for having you know produced this and been there so my other question though too is where does he fall in terms of journalism I mean, I mean, is, is he this, a journalist or is he is just he, is he you a, know, a card carrying journalist quote unquote or uh you know was he is that well, does it does it matter though? I mean, I, I mean, well, when you when question. you just yeah. 
I mean, what is a journalist? I mean, we're we're going through this thing with the whole, you know, the Engadget and the, or not the Engadget, I'm sorry, the Gizmodo, you know, and the iPhone thing. You know, we know that in, uh, at least under California law, bloggers are considered journalists. So, but what about photographers? If you have your images online in a blog, are you a blogger and therefore a journalist? If they're on Flickr, are you a journalist? Because that can kind of, it generates an RSS feed and could be considered a blog. So does that mean you can take pictures of crimes and not be subject to prosecution? I'm, I don't know. I'm just asking the question. Joseph, what did, what do you think? Well, I think as far as separating journalists from non-journalists, that's that's a line that you don't want to tread, right? Because you've got you know, citizen journalism. Anybody walking down the street can take a photograph or write a story about anything that happens, and does that make them a journalist? And what is a journalist? It's a it's a term that's very loosely defined these days between blogs and newspapers. You know, it used to be easy if you were hired by you know the New York Times and and you wrote articles for them, then you were a journalist. And if you didn't, then you weren't. But today, it's it's obviously a very 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 gray area. Um, what happened here? You know, I've read up on the story a bit, and I certainly have read a lot of the comments and the you know, pros and cons, or the, the two different sides of the story there. And it really, I think it comes down to if unless the photographer had asked the people to commit that crime so he could take the picture, then I don't see how he could possibly be held accountable for this. He's witnessing an event. He's photographing an event. Now, it may be that he knew it was happening, but how many photographers go into war zones or go into you know, police ride-alongs or go into any situation where crime is being committed and they document it and their job is to document it. Their job is not to interfere. Um, you, know, you go into, into a war zone and if you, you – know, we've had this discussion on here before. If you see something happening that you could get involved with to help, there's other people whose jobs it is to help and you're just there to document. Is it your job to document or are you supposed to put down the camera and go help? In this case, should he have put down the camera? Is the question no prior knowledge? Yeah, I mean, prior knowledge of a lot of things. I mean, if you any kind of crime, most crime situations, if you're documenting, you're there as a journalist, you know that it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, you know, I'm no lawyer, but I mean, just like from a photographer standpoint, the impact on this guy for you want like as a photographer, you want to take pictures of interesting things, right? And these and if you're if you call yourself a photojournalist that means putting yourself into interesting and sometimes maybe illegal situations like for example you know a photojournalist might embed him or herself with say you know people that are smoking crack in a crack house or something because they want to tell that story uh from the inside out now these people that are doing that are committing a crime and you're documenting it does that mean because you didn't run to the cops and tell them that that's wrong you know right. so i mean I don't know, Aaron, in that in that case, would that be wrong? Should that photographer go to jail or be penalized because he saw people doing illegal substances or smoking illegal substances uh, and he didn't tell on them? Yeah, again, that's why I say I've been thinking about this over and over and I, I can't even personally come up with any clear, you know, answer to it because, yeah. I, you know, I understand that legally to an extent when you're aware that a crime is going on legally, you're supposed to you know, report that or, or be involved in, in letting the police know about that. And, and again, the reason I brought up the prior knowledge thing is, and I'm very much in agreement with Joseph on this, my only point was the comparisons you said, uh, like a police ride-along. Well, in a case like that, um, you know, you're riding along with, uh, with very, very good odds that there's going to be crimes committed that you will witness, but is that not different from being called up and saying, at 3 p.m. we're going to go out here and, and do something, you know, that is known to be wrong. If you want to be there, be there. 
You know, how does that compare? I mean, I'm, I'm asking that question as much as anything. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, this person is is publishing a book, right? That's kind of what his his whole project is. He's doing mm-hmm. a book on it. How many books are there? Go to any you know, bookstore and start looking through the shelves of photography books and look for stories of you know, like like you said, Frederick, the crack den. You know, the the stories of moms on drugs and all these other awful things that are real world scenarios that are crimes by many degrees of of definition, and yet here they are documented in the book for all to see you're going to start criminalizing that. You're going to start criminalizing journalism, right? Yeah. All the news that you're going to see, there would never be a photograph of any crime. There'd be never any documentation of any crime because everybody would be afraid to shoot it out of fear of being persecuted for it, prosecuted right. for it. I will it, say so. that one other factor here, I mean, I'm looking at the story again while we're talking, and the line says the police held him for eight hours before telling him he was being charged with felony vandalism. Mm-hmm. Now, that also draws a line, though, between he's now being charged as if he participated yeah. uh, in it versus... You know what I mentioned earlier about a um, what is a complicit, I guess, in a crime if if you're aware that it's taking place but you don't report it, mm-hmm. or you know, or so on, aiding, abetting, or complicit, or or whatever the phrase may be. Yeah. But in this case, he he appears to be being charged with the actual crime, even though he probably never picked up a paint can and you know and participated. So, yeah. all right. Well, here here's a here's some here's another twist to it that I'll throw in. I want to get your your both of you guys' thoughts on this. Um, pulling your patriotism into the equation. Say you're you're a photographer and you're in New York City and you're documenting stuff and you see some people that may be doing something nefarious in Times Square. Um, Do you photograph that to conclusion or do you shoot it and go alert the authorities? What's the right thing to do? And if you photograph that and don't report it, are you complicit in that crime? Joseph? Oh, sure. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you gave him that first. It's meet the press. I, with would, okay. I, I, I would say at that point, you're, you're talking about lives of other people that are, you know, innocent bystanders that could get hurt. So I think it is your job then to make a call, um, you know, get the police involved or alerted to it, but you shouldn't stop shooting it. I mean, if you're there and you're witnessing something like that and you have the opportunity to document it and photograph it, but you can, you know, absolutely pick up the phone and dial 911 and say, hey, something's going on. You need to get down here. Um, keep shooting it, right? But you've, you've got to alert people. I mean, otherwise you are talking about innocent lives at stake. It's a big difference between blowing up Times Square and killing thousands of innocent people versus, um, you know, spraying some paint on a wall at a freeway underpass. But what if what if that that the time that you took to you know what I'm just going to take these three more shots because these are great shots. What if those the those uh, four seconds would have prevented the disaster from happening? You you can't you know you can never answer that question until you're there, right? Mm-hmm. Those pictures of the people that you saw doing what you think they shouldn't have been doing could be far more valuable to tracking them down later, or um, you know maybe you're at a point where there's no way to stop it, and what you need to do right now is get pictures so you can have the evidence to turn into the police so they can find the people later, you know, whatever the case may be. There, there's no easy answer to that. I think that it becomes a moral, ethical thing where you know what you need to do. You know that you, you know, if you have a way of stopping it or saving lives, then you got to do that. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to stop taking pictures. Yeah. Aaron, what would you do? Times Square, you're shooting. Um, you see somebody that, that looks that looks shifty <laughs> uh, doing something with a car and there's smoke. And do you shoot it? Personally, I mean, in a situation like that, I mean, my priority obviously would be the lives of other people. So, I mean, I think I'd be reporting first and foremost, um, you know, reporting the crime to some extent, but, you know, to, to prevent a disaster. But um, I, I would think shooting 
priority wise, I would say one comes before the other. I mean, certainly reporting the the crime would be one thing. If you're still there while if you've reported it while you're waiting for for authorities to arrive or whatever, then you know keep shooting because as Joseph was saying, that's probably as much evidence as it is you know journalistic photography there in the process. I mean, we're mixing all kinds of things here. I, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, I it'll explode your brain. But if you here, here's another layer to it. What if you rewind that back a little bit? And um, you you are documenting this guy that you know you that may have you know questionable ties, and you're taking photos of him, say buying the stuff to do what he was planning on doing in Times Square. So say you're taking photos of this person buying the fireworks, buying whatever materials, and you're like, well, you know what that that doesn't look right, but you you're documenting. Now, are you? legally bound in the united states to report that person or morally bound to report that person or photographically bound to con- continue documenting the situation joseph back to you what would you do i th- i think at that point um you're legally bound i believe you know, i don't know for sure but i believe that there are legal implications there of knowing of a crime that's going to be committed um in do you know in to that degree especially you know again hurting people or killing other people then yeah i believe that you are legally obligated to report that yeah yeah, Aaron, you and you're I, clearly you're ethically. I mean, ethically, I, there's I no would question. say by next week's show, after the listeners have heard this, there are going to be examples of all of these scenarios. You know, mm-hmm. he brought up in history to discuss. I mean, we started with a guy tagging a wall here, and now we've got you know, Times Square. So I mean, it escalates fast when you start thinking about all the different scenarios. Yeah, I mean, that's law. That's why I don't, I don't ever want to be a lawyer. Crossed my mind was you know war <laughs> photographers that always have to decide between getting involved and. And staying on the sidelines and, and you know shooting. I mean, I've, Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, that situation was happened time and time again. Yeah, yeah. A couple months ago, I wrote a blog post on this on this topic called "Fight or Light," and it generated a lot of uh, comments. It's on FrederickVan.com. If you go there and search for "Fight or Light," um, I, I basically propose a similar scenario. Um, and opened it up to questions and got a lot of questions on, or responses. And, you know, people were um, on both sides of the plane in terms of, hey, you're a photographer, shoot. Your duty is to shoot first. Um, and all the way back to, hey, you're a human before you're a photographer. So you, you know, you, you do the right thing first. And then if you can, you grab the shot. So, you know, it's it's all over the map. And this guy, uh, Jonas Lara, is the guy that we were talking about, the L.A. photographer, so it says here in the article, if he's convicted, the uh, uh, he will. What is it? Yeah, he was he was looking to enter the MFA program at the School of Visual Arts in New York, of which one of our guests, Katrine Eisman, is uh, sits on the chair of, and uh, he will not be able to enter that. Um, and he was actually accepted to the school in September. So basically, it's going to derail his whole career, or at least you know take it on a on a detour for trying to do a story so that that's a it's an interesting thing and i I think you guys are right it's a it's an unsolvable unanswerable question um at least in this forum so it's uh it's gonna have to go to a higher court than twip i think (laughs) true (laughs) is there a higher court than twip Twip? i don't know (laughs) i think there's no question i'll go out on a limb here and i'll say there's absolutely no way this guy's going to be convicted it's uh he may if it even goes to trial and i seriously seriously doubt it'll even go to trial but if it does um i think we're talking to kangaroo court here this is just ridiculous yeah 
yeah, so we'll see. We'll have to keep an eye on that. All right, uh, last story here that we're going to talk about. Um, I want to talk about Nokia. This is this is sort of a, a, a photography-related story, but I uh, just want to talk about it just briefly. Nokia is suing Apple for patent infringements on the iPad and, and iPhone again. Now, uh, now, Joseph, I know you used to work at the company, and this is, this is Nokia's second time or maybe at least their second time up to bat trying to take down or at least get some money out of Apple. Uh, have you read the story? And what do, you, what do you think about this? You know, honestly, I haven't. But um, it's it just seems kind of crazy. There are so many patent infringements going on um, that are, you know, is it really a patent infringement? Did you develop a technology that's just kind of sort of like it? And therefore, you know, we should we should patent this. We should sue about it. Didn't somebody once claim that they patented HTTP? <laughs> I mean, it's just... Yeah. It, it gets ridiculous. It gets to a point where it's like, you know what? This technology is out there. Everybody's using it, and you're just bitter because you're not selling as many phones as you used to. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think, uh, Aaron, you you have anything to add to that? Um, I'm going to go completely with what he said. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> I, I have to tell you, I've seen so many patent infringement you know stories come by in my. It, it's almost like a daily thing in my RSS feeds. Oh, Apple's getting sued again. Oh, yeah. Apple's getting sued again. You know, yeah. I'm just. It's, it's called King of the Hill. Yeah. You got to try to push the guy on the top of the hill off. You know, it's, yeah. it's, what, it's what we do. All right. Another quick nod to one of our sponsors. Uh, this Week in Photography is brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to establish a high-quality website or blog. And they've just announced new social widgets. I love the word social. Um, so social widgets, they've announced a native Twitter widget that allows you to add multiple accounts. You can filter by keyword and customize the look and feel of your design and embed that in your site. They've uh, announced a native Flickr widget that also allows you to have multiple accounts with varied layouts. And then finally, they've uh, added a native RSS widget that allows you to pull in the feeds from almost any other site on the web, which do that at your, you know, make sure you have the permission of the other RSS feed before you embed that in your site. So, yeah, so they've got a native, native Twitter feed or tw- Twitter widget, a Flickr widget, and an RSS widget. Um, and then, of course, uh, Squarespace.com, they're that easy-to-use UI for creating and managing your website or blog that Twiplog is using, Aperture Expert is using. Um, and it's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. Uh, so, basically, Joseph, you're you're using... Squarespace.com, like you're a power user in there, correct? And you've got forums going, you've got membership yeah. levels in there, all kinds of stuff, right? How's that been yeah, for absolutely. you? Uh, it's been fantastic. I, I really love how easy it is to use. And yeah, like you said, I've got the forums in there for Aperture Expert. I'm, I'm paying for the, I think it's the top tier um, membership, the, you know, the top tier monthly fee for that one because I wanted to have the private membership so people can create their own account on there and I've got it set up so that you have to create an account to um, either post a question in the forum or to post comments. And I did that to, you know, keep back on spam and also keep back on trolls just to keep the site a little bit more clean. And you have complete control over that. It's uh, It's been a really great experience. I really love it. All right. And I've said before, I, their support, Squarespace's uh, tech support is second to none. They're great. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, so if you want to try Squarespace out, you can get a free trial. Just head over to squarespace.com forward slash TWIP, T-W-I-P. You don't need a credit card. You can try it out, build your website, um, and check out all the controls and all the stuff that we're talking about and those new widgets I just mentioned. Uh, And if you decide that you want to go with it, you'll get 10% off when you enter the offer code TWIP when you sign up for a paid account. So definitely check that out, squarespace.com. 
All right, now we're going to jump to a really interesting interview that I did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this was right after the iPad had launched. Um, a good friend of mine got his hands on one early. Um, he's also a photographer and a journalist. He works at a little rag called uh, USA Today. Um, his name is Jefferson Graham, and he does the technology. He does a technology column for the for the USA Today, and uh, agreed to come on, give us some early thoughts or his early thoughts on the iPad, and also talk about his photography business and how he sort of manages being that the you know the phrase that I, I try to talk about all the time multimediographer because he's shooting video stills capturing audio and writing so check out this one this is a really interesting interview I'm here with Jefferson Graham uh, Jefferson Graham if you don't know the name um, is the the technology reporter for a little tiny uh, newspaper and I'm saying that tongue in cheek of course called USA Today. So it, Jefferson Graham runs a uh, runs a uh, his column or his beat, if you will, is technology, and uh, the piece that he writes on or, or, or creates media for is called Talking Tech. I'm lucky enough to have Jefferson here to talk about photography, convergence, the iPad, and all sorts of things. So Jefferson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's uh, cool to be on the other side because you should tell people that we first met when I had you on the show. That's right. Yeah. The first time we met was I was the senior product marketing manager for Lightroom and uh, we flew down to meet you in Southern California and did an introduction to Lightroom. So thank you. That was my first interaction with you. And you were the coolest interview subject of all time. (laughs) Yeah. You're digging a hole, are you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, was that, was, that was great. Yeah, that was it was an honor to be interviewed by you, and it's uh, it's also an honor to conduct an interview of you. So it's kind of it's kind of weird. And just so you know, I am nervous because I'm interviewing Jefferson Graham from USA Today. Oh, come on, come on. <laughs> come on. You know, you're, I'm looking at the photo of you right now. Just just so the audience knows, this is where it's April first, uh, 2010. Yeah. Which means we are right before the official release of the iPad. And I'm looking at a photo of Jefferson on his blog at jeffersongram.wordpress.com of you holding an iPad. You know, so I know we're going to get to that in the end. But I, yeah. I, you know, so just a teaser. So those of you listening, we're going to get Jefferson Graham's first impressions of the iPad and, and how it might relate to photographers at the end of this interview. And the iPad is right next to me right now. So you know. Yeah, now you got to rub it in, right? You just got to do yeah. that. <laughs> All right, so let's get when we first met, and when I'm talking to you about when when it, we were just saying that you were uh, interviewing me about Lightroom, you were knowledgeable about photography, you know, and I just thought, wow, this guy's done his homework. But come to find out, you are an accomplished photographer who is a professional photographer, meaning you have a business around photography as well as all of this other stuff you're doing. Yes, I, my day job is I am a writer and photographer and video producer and host of a web video show for USA Today. And on weekends, I'm a photographer. Wow. On weekends. <laughs> and that's every weekend. That's every weekend. Okay, so how did, how did you get into photography and, and what, what drove you to well, it? Well, gosh, if you want to go back, I've been um, – uh, my dad got, bought me a Pentax Spotmatic when I was 13. And I've been shooting – uh, we don't need to say how many decades, but it's many decades. <laughs> nice. I, li- I grew up in my dark room. Nice. Okay. So that see that that's the metric right there. You know chemicals. You, you know what chemicals yes. are. Awesome. Yes. 
pre-photoshopped. So I grew up in the dark room, and uh, when my son went to college about six years ago, we needed to raise some money for tuition, so we got serious about weekend photography, and uh, we paid for three of the four years based on the photography. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. so, so this draw the contrast between when you started actually generating income from photography and today. How have things changed for you? I mean, aside from the obvious, there's digital. Now, is it, is it harder or is it easier? Oh, um, well, I shoot a lot more pictures and the files are much bigger. How about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, uh, have, you have to store more. Weekend, yeah. Last weekend, I shot 30 gigs because I'm shooting it all raw. And, and um, actually, the job after that, I decided uh, this is getting crazy. I'm, I think I'm going to shoot S-RAW this time. Wow. And that was only 19 gigs. Wow. So the, uh, the, for your, your day job, Drobo, man, we're filling those things up. Oh, so you're using a Drobo. Very cool. Yeah. It's right on my desk. Um, yeah, the files are just huge. Nice. We've so- we, we got to tackle that. So there's got to be a, a, a happy medium in between. You mean the the between I, having I, a gigantic shooting, file size, you know, shooting shooting twenty two megapixel, um, you know, shooting twenty two megapixel full raw files? Uh, it's probably not the wisest thing to always be doing. Yeah. Well, what's your final output? Are you you primarily building printed material? Or are you? Are, is it the web? Yeah, I make prints. I make prints, and uh, I just feel comfortable shooting. I do weddings and bar mitzvahs is what I do on the weekends, mm-hmm. and I just feel comfortable when I'm doing the portraits to be shooting in full raw. Yeah, so you have the latitude to, to for color for for white balance for color and for cropping. I just like having having the extra data there. And what are you post processing in, or what's your what's your asset Lightroom. management? Lightroom, Lightroom, there you yes. go. Yeah, see, I sold you on it. I sold you on it that first time, right? Yeah, and I love the new Lightroom three. It's just incredible. Yeah, what's what's your favorite feature of the the Lightroom three beta? My favorite feature would be the noise reduction. Yeah. And, uh, gosh, what else? The, um, that would be the big one, would be the noise reduction. Yeah. And the, the import's better also, I, th- I think. Oh, yeah, they refine that. That noise reduction is magical, though. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it changes a lot in terms of the, the usability at higher ISOs of the images you can get. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to playing with the final shipping version of that thing. What about uh, Photoshop? You've seen, um, you know, don't want to talk about anything that's that's unreleased, but we've seen the demos of the content-aware fill, and we talked about that yes. this week in photography a lot, or a little bit uh, last week. Have you seen that? And what do you, what do yes, you think I have. about that? Yeah, it looks great, um, but I'll I'll have a better feeling of it once it's in my computer and I'm actually working with it. Yeah. Because I, I've seen the demos a million times where somebody shows you how easy it is to do something and how cool it looks, and then you try it on your computer, and nothing looks like it looked when they showed it to you. Right, right. It's kind of like that's uh, my experience with all these products that people show me all the time. Um, that that's great, but let's see how it, how it is at home when you're not standing in front of me. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, when you go to Taco Bell or something like that, and you look at the picture on the wall versus what they actually hand you. Right? <laughs> Yes, it's a little bit different. Now, speaking of people, that- yes, I, I um, everything starts in Lightroom, and uh, the usually twenty or thirty sh- uh, shots end up in Photoshop afterwards. Excellent, excellent. Now, I was going to say, speaking of people that you've 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 interviewed during your day job at USA Today, or you know, running the blog, um, the video show, 
I'm looking at your Flickr feed, um, and it's yeah. Flickr, Flickr.com slash photos slash Jefferson Graham. You can see all your stuff there. But um, some of the, the personalities in here, I mean, you've got everybody in here from Eric Schmidt to iJustine to the founders of, of, of all these companies. Now, yeah. and, and you're doing portraits of them. Now, they let you do yeah. these portraits of them, or you, do, you, do you say, in order for me to interview you, you have to submit to a portrait by me? <laughs> How does that go? I uh, Oh, I don't say it. We just do it. <laughs> That's awesome. um, it's generally it's just so, so you understand. I, I do this w- weekly web video show called Talking Tech, mm-hmm. and every Wednesday I do an article for the paper. Um, and so f- we do an article and we do a video, and I take the picture for the article. So it's 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 uh, print, video, and photography. And so every shoot tends to be at least two, about two to two and a half hours. We start off doing the video interview, then we do the portrait afterwards. Okay, got it. So, so these, these photos I'm looking at actually appeared uh, appear in the article. They all, every one of them was in the article except for the one about Eric, except for the Eric Schmidt one, which okay. is just something that I, I snapped at Google when I did an interview with him. Gotcha. Uh, but the the other ones are part of the Wednesday Talking Tech feature. Okay, very cool. And how long have you? How long has this uh, the feature been running? I've been doing it for about a year and a half, and I've been taking the pictures for it for about a year. Uh, at a certain point, the photo department said, hey, why don't you start doing that? And I said, I'd be thrilled to. Uh, it's a great challenge for me, and I, I love doing it. The The snag is, that, of course, there's never any time. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, so, sometimes you're just rushing, rushing. We light the videos with video lights mm-hmm. by Lowell Pros, which are pretty good. Sometimes they work for the photos. The pictures of I Justine were all done with the video lights, and I think they were fantastic on those ones. Oh yeah. And sometimes they're not fantastic, and and so I, I love my lights. I've got I've got every light you can imagine, and but sometimes it's just not the, the the time to set it up correctly. Hopefully there'll be more time, or we'll we'll just get better at at doing this. I have an assistant who works with me who runs the video camera, mm-hmm. and so we're we're doing doing that together, and then do, I'm producing and and really figuring out where all the shots should be. Uh, but we're doing the lighting and we're doing the sound and we're doing the video and, and then we're doing the portraits afterwards. So it, it's a lot in that two hours. So, yeah, two hours. So what we talk As about... As you can remember when we lit you. I know, remember? I remember. I remember you in that restaurant, so, right? <laughs> it was so beautiful. It was the best shot we ever had and then they kicked us out in the middle of the shoot. <laughs> they did. Just so folks know... I forget the name of the restaurant we met at. Was this this was Manhattan Beach, I think. And uh, it was Manhattan Beach. It was the Shade Hotel. The Shade Hotel, which is a very ritzy sort of W or meets V hotel in Las Vegas kind of feel in there. Uh, but we were all in there. We had the video all set up and lit and perfect, and I had the the laptop set up, and I was ready to go through the spiel. And we look over, and the manager's like whispering to some other person next to them. Here, here they come over. Um, you guys can't shoot in here. <laughs> <laughs> kicked, us, kicked us out but we ended up getting a good interview anyway on the street somewhere right well luckily we had already done 15 minutes so we got great stuff there yeah yep so it was fine yeah. everything worked out perfectly and if you want to see that's on the that's on google right or on um it's on, it's, YouTube. it's on youtube it's one of the most popular videos of all time <laughs> listen to you <laughs> you are crazy <laughs> only because you were in it yeah that's right that's yeah, right yeah. only because i was in it before but that was bef- that's pre-twip too i look like a little kid in there <laughs> uh, um so 
So know, anyway, I do I'm, these pieces every Wednesday. Yes. I'm listening. I'm listening to you, and I'm hearing that you are on a weekly basis dealing with sound design. You're dealing with writing articles or text. You're dealing with video. You're dealing with photography. So you, like the title of the last this week in photography, was multimediography. Um, you are a multimediographer. You are one of those guys that needs to create all these different kinds and flavors of bits and deliver them to someone who's paying you. How do you how this you are kind of representative of where people are going to be going or or what they're going to need to do, especially and, with these devices shooting. like the iPad and all this stuff out. You're yeah. going what? <laughs> how do you and, manage and it? And we're and we're shooting our videos on the five D. Wow. So you are doing that. Okay. So yeah. what, how do you manage all this stuff? Is it just having a good assistant to help you manage stuff or what, what's the secret to being adept well, at everything? First of all, I couldn't do it alone. Uh, I'll just tell you that uh, I, tr- I try doing these interviews sometimes where I put the camera on the tripod and I say, uh, I stand next to the tripod and I say, look at me. And there's just not the connection. It, it's really hard to connect. They really need someone else behind the camera and you need to look, stand right next to somebody, have them look you in the eye. I think for a video interview really, really goes a long way when you have someone doing that. Uh, but as far as the workflow goes, it's a lot. But it's okay. I mean, I, I thrive on it. I, I really love doing it. Uh, having someone shooting really helps. Uh, he helps me with the editing. I, I also edit a lot. And Thursdays and Fridays are kind of, and particularly Mondays, they're kind of hectic because I got to, you know, I'm doing all, all, the, all, getting all three done mm-hmm. at the same time. It's a lot, but um, but uh, you know what a what a great package when you can have a, an article that comes to life in a video, and you could just watch it, watch the interview come to life. Yeah, I, I, you know, you, we never had that before. And do these do the articles that you the, the the printed versions do they appear in print in USA Today as well? Yeah, yeah, every Wednesday. Wow, that, that's that's amazing. So what's next? I mean, what what what's the next frontier of media that you need to conquer? Hmm. Oh, I, uh, you're well, going to say the, the iPad. Idea. I know you're going to say the yeah, iPad. Yeah, no, well, no, just to have more video. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, there should be videos every day, but there just should be a lot more videos. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we started from doing webcam to produced videos. So we really, I think some of the stories could, you know, are TV quality. And not all of them, but, but certainly a bunch of them could be on TV. And at the beginning, they couldn't. They, they looked pretty, um, they pretty, they looked amateurish. Okay. Uh, yeah, but uh, so I think the production quality has you know really come a long way, and I just would love to see more more video. I think that that's where the newspapers going. You just want to see a living newspaper. And your entire crew that's creating all this media or that's creating the piece every week is you Ian and David. You're in your assistant, right? Ian David. Yeah, David Medill. Wow, that's great. Is that the same guy that I met when I was when you interviewed it's me? It's not. He graduated college. Brian has moved on. Wow. Okay. So now you, there's a new person under the wing. There's a new Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. All right. Jeffrey, let, let, let's jump over to – so we talked about convergence a little bit. So you are – like I'm saying, I got to label you as the poster child for convergence and multimediography. But what about um, this next wave as I see it um, with these portable devices like the iPhone, the – you know, Mr. Schmidt's device, the Android, you know, operating system. And, um, of course the iPad that's coming out this weekend. Um, do you see that as another platform for, 
for photographers to have to consider as a delivery mechanism, or can they just continue doing what they're doing and let the uh, let the hardware and software manufacturers sort out how they're going to d- display the content? Well, the iPad is not; it, it's just another presentation uh, option, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's it. The people aren't aren't as you know. There's no camera on it, so you're not going to be taking pictures with it. Right. But if you were meeting with clients, wouldn't it be cool to show them pictures? On an iPad, because you you haven't seen it, but the screen is more impressive on the iPad than it is on the MacBook. Even though it's smaller, I don't know what they did, but the colors just pop. And if you could show a slideshow on the iPad, it would be incredibly impressive. So I think a lot of people are going to be buying it just to be the coolest guy in town, coolest gal in town, and to show to show it off. Yeah. What's your so What's your favorite you know, feature? It's something of that everyone, I think, any professional who meets with clients is going to want it to show their work. What's your What's your favorite feature of the iPad right now? The graphics, just how incredible it looks. Really, really. Yeah, yeah. Any? What about the applications? I know if you're did they did Apple ship well, it with applications. Well, the thing about the applications you have to understand is we got early versions of the iPad, and at the time there were eight applications, mm-hmm. and they said they were just going into the App Store. Now. Today, around 3 o'clock, I started seeing a bunch of apps showing up in the App Store. Mm-hmm. And I keep going back in there, and I'm finding more and more and more. And they're just slowly going in. And I, and I, before you called, I started downloading them. I, I threw AP on there and the Wall Street Journal. I put in USA Today, NPR. NPR was really cool. But I've, I've only seen them for a few minutes. Yeah. They're, oh, oh, here's the best one. The best one. Netflix has an application. I heard about that. This is a Netflix app in there now. <laughs> you, you can watch, um, what is it, 19,000 movies on the iPad for free? I mean, for free if you're a Netflix subscriber. Yeah. But how cool is that? That's magic because right there. Because you don't want to watch movies on your computer, uh, You know, certainly not on a desktop, maybe a laptop, but on the iPad. Now we're talking. How long, how long have you had it? Uh, since last week. Okay, so you had a you had a good amount of time to play with it and, and sort of integrate it into your daily life, right? Yeah, except that you know I only had those six apps, right? Because right. that that those were the ones that were preloaded. But that they but what about so did they preload it with the with the i applications? Like all the, the new the new ones I just mentioned I just found today. What about pages and numbers and all that? Were they on there? Yeah, I've got pages and numbers. Uh, I'm not you uh, the the workarounds are are so crazy. Um, you know, this is a closed system by Apple. Apple doesn't want to have a USB slot because they don't want anybody putting anything. They want to control every aspect. So if I'm going to create a, a presentation in pages, I have to then email it to my other computer to print it because there's no way to print off the iPad. So as far as I'm concerned, you can forget about Keynote, you can forget about pages, you can forget about numbers because it's going to be too hard. Wow. There's no way to get – you can't go in and out of it, right? The photographs I, – I keep all my – I use SmugMug and Fanfare. Mm-hmm. They, I, most of my photos are on both of those sites. And I can save it directly to the iPad and, and it will go into the photo section of iPad. So that's good. I could do that. I could work with that. And then there's this photo adapter for $30 that lets you uh, uh, input pictures from your camera. But then it's going to input everything. And you're not going to have Lightroom on there. You're not going to have Photoshop. Uh, the, uh, I asked Apple today whether any of these programs will work on the iPad, and it's only ones that are in the App Store. 
So Photoshop.com, I assume you could do some light, light edits on the pictures. But I shoot in RAW. So forget it. Yeah, yeah, and I think Photoshop.com is is largely I'm not I'm not looking at it right now, but I think it's based on Flash to a large degree, right? right. A- another Adobe technology which is not supported by the iPad. So um, I think you probably get that question mark 3D box sitting there telling you, hey, sorry, can't load Flash. Do you think you think the lack of Flash support on this thing is going to be its Achilles heel, or do you think people photographers well, in general are going to get over it? It would have been. But Apple has such clout that he's got Netflix that's got Netflix doing an application that's not in Flash. ABC is doing an application, it's not in Flash. Mm-hmm. If you go to Safari right now, CBS, ABC, Hulu, NBC, Nickelodeon, ESPN, all the sites in Flash, you get nothing when it comes to video. Yeah. But they want to be on the iPad, so they're going to create an app. Yeah. Apple can dictate uh, it can change the market. Now, I think Adobe is going to be really hurt. Really? Yeah. So you think, you think well, I mean, it, it could go one of two ways, right? It could go, um, Adobe's going to be hurt because the world is going to say, you know, poo-poo Flash and we're going to HTML5. Or the world could say Flash has a 99.9% penetration rate, so let's keep Flash and let's add HTML5. You know, and make make both worlds happy because the some yeah. of the, some of the things that I've heard about HTML5 is you know we of course I've heard all the negative stuff about Flash how it's a memory hog and crashes yada 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 but some I've been doing a little research and it turns out it is a memory hog but on the Mac <laughs> it's a memory hog on Windows because the because Flash can can access the GPU it performs wonderfully and is very stable so I'm. You know, if I was a developer, if I was a Netflix or a Hulu or someone, I would say, let's do both and have the best of both worlds, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, we'll see. I, I've, I've never said to myself, gee, you know, this Flash video looks so great. Yeah. It couldn't look any better. Yeah. That I've never said. I don't know about you. <laughs> no, either. No. Yeah. Never never been blown away, huh? <laughs> no. Yeah. So what do, what do you make of, not to make, I know this is a photography show, but, you know, I've got Jefferson Graham here who's, who's interviewed everybody on the planet. So I need to ask you some questions about this. Um, That's fine. The, there's this, there's the either alleged or proven, whatever, rivalry that's supposedly brewing between Apple and Google, between Eric Schmidt and um, and Steve Jobs. Do you, I mean, not who cares about what their interpersonal relationship is, if any, you know, um, but between the two companies, do you think a rivalry between Apple and Google will ultimately hurt photographers and consumers in general, or will it, will it be the democracy thing and it will, all ships will rise because they're both, you know, trying to outdo each other? I don't see how it could affect photographers, uh, unless everybody's using, uh, Aperture 3. Uh, versus Picasso, where, where's the photography connection here? Yeah, yeah, that's true. But in terms of just overall, like for example, um, you know, let's let's look at YouTube, right? So Google owns YouTube. A lot of photographers are leveraging YouTube more increasingly now to show little slideshows of their work and that sort of thing. Do I mean that's a stretch? I know not everybody's doing it, but 
you know, you look at that, you look at the rivalry between the Android phone and the iPad versus, and the, or the tablet that Google's allegedly building versus the iPad and Android versus iPhone and Flash, you know, Google today was announced that Google has integrated Flash technology deeply into Chrome, their web browser. Um, whereas, you know, Apple's moving away from it. You know, those kind of divergences, do we care about those? Should we care? Well, we want Apple to be strong, and we want Google to be strong. We don't want Apple to have 100%, nor Google to have 100%. Mm -hmm. As anybody knows, can you get anybody from Google on the phone? If you have a problem with YouTube? Mm, No. Not to my knowledge, no. (laughs) No, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, So any competition is, is great. Yeah, I think. Yes, yeah, sure. uh, I, I get to see Android. You know, t- I, you know, with all the geniuses at Google, I've never understood why Android is such a ho hum product. Uh, that that's probably that's one of the biggest surprises I've ever seen at Google, because usually everything they do is really smart. Uh, I, I anyway, I've been I have not been excited about Android. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, no, me either. I played with an Android phone, and it, it was. Uh... First time I touched one was Kelly Lewis had one, and I was playing around with it. And it's it's interesting, but to me, I don't know. Maybe it was just me because I'm used to the iPhone OS. But it was uh, it seemed a little clunky. You know, it seemed a, yeah. it seemed a little unfinished and very geeky but, in terms of how, how geeks like things that are unfinished. You know, but Google's power in the marketplace has put it on all these phones because they go to the phone companies and say, "Here's a free software system." Yeah. Yeah, give it away free. Give it away free. But we we've got like a, a we've got like a four way thing going on here. Is we've got Microsoft versus Google versus Apple versus Adobe. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we've got this little. It's like a reality show in Silicon Valley now. You know, which is which is great for people like you because you're you know a journalist that's covering all this stuff and it gets more and more interesting. But I'm just wondering what what the shakeout is going to be for consumers. I mean, uh, like. If, for example, if Apple could have put Flash on the iPad and the iPhone, but didn't for political reasons, then then they're just sort of blatantly hurting consumers because I can't go watch my Hulu on this. Well, device. I think they're blatantly hurting consumers now. How? Because how many how many photographers are listening to the show have a Flash website? Yeah, ninety percent. I, I predict yeah. that most. I'm one have of a Flash website. <laughs> yeah, and their websites will not be seen on the iPod uh, iPad. So they're hurt. They're and hurt. They're hurt. Yeah. From everything I, I've been told that I've heard, this is not a political decision. This is a personal decision mm-hmm. by the CEO of the company. Doesn't like Flash. So I'm not going to put it on. Yeah. So personal decision driving basically the entire planet because, right. because uh, for example, like you just said, most a, a lot of photographers have flash websites, especially ask the live books guys, right? So a lot of photographers right. have flash websites, which are suddenly or which are increasingly becoming more and more crippled. So that's going to force these photographers to bend to Steve's will if they want their devices, their, their sites to be seen on these devices. Meaning now they're going to retool in HTML5 or just make less exciting websites, uh, if you will, to yeah, so uh, to show what, them this what, other uh, stuff. I've got Flash on my website too. So what do I do? Well, uh, how do I show, show a slideshow? You uh, do you I run re- a quick time movie? It. You rewrite it, yeah. In what? Uh, yeah, quick time? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You're gonna go back to like like 19, you know, 85 or whatever, and have a website with the images with a click to see the next image kind of thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Forget about the transitions. So yeah, we're in that we're so we're early adopters. So we're caught in this overlapping period between when the things way the way things were and the way things are going to be. So cuz we're like we have no idea what we're going to do and we're kind of back in the remember the browser war- wars when you know when yeah. flash wasn't ubiquitous and you had to like okay, I'm going to install this stuff but I have to tell my users to go download these plugins in order to see my site. You know, we're kind of getting back to that again and that kind of fragmentation which is scary for us. Especially for people that like you, I mean, you're making money from your website. You have clients coming to your website to see your work. And if you have a client that comes there on their new iPad, you're not going to get that job. They're going to go to the next guy, right? So what do you do? Well, but the only, the only, the only good news is the next guy has Flash too. <laughs> That's and right. they're going to have to find anybody. That's right. Until they get to the guy that has the old 1985 website that's written in HTML 2.0, right? And then right. it'll render properly. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So, and then the other thing on the iPad uh, is printing, right? Did, were, were you able you can't to print? You can't print anything? No, you can't print. No. No, there's no printer dock. Uh, they don't want you to print because they don't want any drivers on it. Well, how do you. <laughs> You okay. Have to email it to yourself. You email the file okay. to yourself and then print it. Yes. And you, have you done that? Is that that's no? That's the uh, only way. But, but Keynote and Pages and Numbers. Uh, let's see. Pages you can save as a doc file. Numbers you can save as a PDF. And Keynote you have to save it as the Keynote file. So that will only work with Macs, and and you have to have Keynote on your MacBook. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. So if you're, if you, let me, let me, here's a use case, Jefferson. You're, you're working on keynote, you build this presentation because you got to deliver it to someone on your MacBook Pro, right? Um, yeah. And you save it. How do you get that from your MacBook Pro into your iPad? You have to like do You something. save it. Uh, I, I just opened it up right now. Uh, you, op- you save it as a, as a file somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhere it's here. Um, they showed it to me last week. But uh, I'm not going to take up your time by, by playing around with it. Yeah. But you save it as a file, and then you email it to yourself. So it is. So email is a transport for this. Stuff. I think I think you could also sync it back. I think through the syncing. Now the syncing has not worked for me because they're coming out with a new version of uh, iTunes on Saturday. Okay. So they said don't don't even try to sync until the new version comes out. Okay. Okay. Wow. So it, it, is this the iPad that they sent you? Is that yours to keep, or do you have to send it back? No, I don't keep anything. I, uh, we, 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 everything's on loan, and then I return it. Okay. So that then the question becomes, Are you knowing what you know about the iPad and being a photographer, are you going to buy one? Uh, let's see how the syncing goes. Yeah. Let's yeah. see what it's like with the new software. Yeah. So your jury's still but out. But it's for- certainly a great it, – it, uh, I'm a big hit at parties. <laughs> right now until everybody has one and then, right and then it's over you're just one of many it's like iphones That's right. iphones were cool because you're when you were the first kid on the block you know now everybody has one so it's like yeah whatever so yeah yeah it's cool so okay on back to photography what yes. uh what do you so you're you say you're shooting with a 5d mark ii you're doing yeah, 5d your, mark ii and you, what are you editing in what am I editing? Yeah, I mean, what are you, are you using? Lightroom. No, 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 no. For the for your video, are you shooting? Um... Oh, video is on Final Cut. Final Cut. Okay, so your workflow. Oh, and is... just just to just to clarify that, uh, David, who I work with, he uses the Sony EX1 camera. Okay. It's a video camera. Yep. And then we shoot second camera on the 5D. 
So we do wide shot and sound on the EX1, and then we do the 5D for close-ups. Oh, nice, with a shallow depth of field, right? Exactly. I use my 70, uh, 70 to 200 lens on that, mm-hmm. and, and then we cut them together. So from start to finish, um, from when you sit down with an interviewee to yeah. when, the, when the, the final product is done and you're uploading, how long does this take? Uh, eight to ten hours. Eight to ten hours. Wow. Yeah. I can tell you, the, um, the, the iPad video that's up right now, and that's a little different because it's a straight review, but we started on it at 10 a.m. last Friday and we finished at 5. Okay. That's not too bad. That's not too bad. And that thing's probably really popular. I'm sure it's been viewed a gazillion times online so far. So. Yep. <laughs> that's cool. All right. So to close this off, Jefferson, what, what can people, like the, the photographers that are out there right now, um, there's, there's two questions here. So there's the, the convergence question and, and being jack of all trades and master of all of them. First of all, how do they, what's the best way for them to get to where you are in terms of being knowledgeable about all these different media uh, that they need to be fluent in? Read sites like yours, yep. Strobist, Sil Arena's uh, Pixelated, oh. Scott Kelby's site, you know, all the usual. Just, you know, soak it up. Yeah. Yeah, because the information's out there's there. There's more knowledge out there now than ever before. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, I used to buy those Kodak books. There was, there was like 10 of them. And you would just read them. Uh, and now there's just so much. I, we had a problem the other day. We were doing some lighting tests. And uh, my pocket wizards weren't, weren't firing. And the flashes weren't going off. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. And I just typed my problem in. And then I found eight people had the same problem and had the solution right there on the spot. We never had that before. No, we didn't. <laughs> no, we Any didn't. Any problem you could imagine, somebody else has had and they're writing about it and they're talking about it and they have the answer. You know what we had before, Jefferson? We had libraries. That's what uh, <laughs> but, go but research. What library, what library could you go to to, talk, to to look up your pocket wizard issue? You couldn't. And your cord keeps coming out of the flash and why does it keep falling out? You could not. You could not. Yep, yep, times have changed. So then this the second question um is just basically on the iPad stuff. You're one of the few photographers like I said on the planet right now that have had extensive experience with that thing and you're a working pro and you're doing all this media stuff. Like you said the jury's still out on it, but in terms of the coming wave and we know there's a wave of these devices that don't support flash here already and more coming with the iPad. What should photographers do in your opinion? to sort of brace themselves? Is it time to just delete the directory where their site lives and start again? Or, or what should they do? Oh, on their photo site? Yeah. I wish I knew the answer to that. As far as doing slideshows in YouTube, there is a YouTube app, and you could show your videos there. there uh, on Vimeo, uh, which is my favorite video sharing site, by the way, uh, they're in HTML5. So you, you could put your videos up there and show them, show them to anybody. Oh, right. right and you'll, right. you'll have the best of both worlds. Yeah, so maybe that's the solution. Build build your slideshows in Vimeo and upload them in HD. Yeah, um, Animoto is really popular with photographers, but I think they're Flash. Yeah, they are. They are. I wonder if they're but planning sure to I'm sure they, they will be uh, adapting, though, because they're smart guys. Yeah. yeah. Did you, you you interviewed those guys, didn't you? I sure did. Wow. So you, As did you, right? Um, I did. Yes, I did. What did you think of the service? Yeah. I think it's great. Uh, it, it's really eye-popping and it looks wonderful you know the big question of with animoto is you've seen one you've seen two you really like it you're ready to see six or seven 
Yeah. That, 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 I think that's their, uh, that's, they've got to figure out a way to, to give different flavors of Animoto. Yeah, other than just speeding it up or slowing it down based on the tempo. Yeah, no, I yeah. I totally agree because you don't you, you don't want to be typecast like oh you're using that Animoto site or you know anything like that. Well, it's the same thing with photographer websites in the wedding business. Mm-hmm. Everyone seems to have the live books or big folio, and every site looks identical. Yep, I don't see how that helps anybody. Yeah, yeah, I was talking to those guys a couple of days ago, and that's the exact feedback I gave them because it's like. You know, you look at you look at the fl- first of all the problem with the sites is like we were just talking about it's flash. You know, so a strike and then b it's the more popular they get, the more ubiquitous their look and feel is. The less people that want to think outside the box are going to want to use them. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right on that. So yeah, my photography website may not look as good as everybody else's, but at least it's not the same. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It is, uh, you know, it's a it's an interesting spot to be in for for companies that are doing that because they don't they're they're they've kind of live books in particular has positioned themselves and I had the CMO of live books on the show and you can check in the archives but you know they position themselves as kind of the high end brand they're trying to break away from that but they positioned as a high end brand and and they did a lot of that affinity marketing you know where you have you know, some celebrity that uses the site, celebrity photographer that uses live books. So if you want to be like XYZ photographer, you use live books. And the the net of that is people are like, well, you know, one day I'll get up there where so-and-so is, but until then I'm going to use iWeb. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, Cause that's free. It's already on my Mac and I don't have to pay all this money to do it. So yeah, it's they pretty- do have to pay 99 a year for it. Don't they? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. They're they're they've, they're changing their pricing model. I think it's ninety nine now, but it was uh, before. It was, you know, you could buy into a lifetime site of support for you know a lot of money. But I think they're they're bringing it. It's the same problem with it, with Apple stuff. They show you these templates and and look at how great it looks, and you say, okay, wonderful. And then everybody's got the same template. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's easy. You know, the the problem is easily solved. Just head to some place like ninety nine designs dot com or something and have them design it for you. You know. Take a WordPress site and customize it, and then you're done. Yeah. But you're going to pay through the nose, or no, you're going to pay a lot more than what you'd pay uh, iWeb to do that for you. Right. So, so last question. Um, we yeah. talked. We talked about your articles. You know, so you're doing the text, you're doing video, you're doing photography. Uh, we didn't touch on sound that much. So, what are, are you? Are you? Do you do any sort of interviews like this where they're audio only? I do not do any audio interviews, but I will say that anybody who's aspiring to get into video, sound is the biggest issue. It's the one that will give you the most trouble. And uh, they say that sound is 50% of any good video, maybe even more. Yeah, It's, it's a problem. And, uh, you know, when, when you're doing an interview with somebody, you want to have two-channel sound, so you can't use a cheap camcorder. You need to use a professional-level camcorder that has XLR inputs for, for two microphones. And yeah. you're, you're, you're in the thousands of dollars for that. And then your microphones are $1,000 for two. It's, it's just, it gets very expensive. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of photographers think they can... Sennheiser lab mics. Sennheiser lab mics you use? Yeah. yeah. I think the, the EW100s. I was going to say a lot of a lot of photographers think you know I'm just going to go get this 5D Mark II and suddenly I'm going to be shooting you know this this cinematic type video which they might be shooting it but you're absolutely right they don't get that audio unless they're doing 
talkies or not not talkies mm-hmm. silent films yeah. <laughs> not gonna... uh, beach tech beach tech has an adapter for the 5d and I, I assume for the 7d as well that will give you two channel sound and it will connect to the mini headphone microphone jack yeah yep well it's uh if you have definitely i guess the takeaway from that is um there's a lot of different disciplines that photographers are going to need to learn in order to if they're planning on getting into this stuff well, Jefferson, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to come chat with me. I know you're anxious to get back to your iPad and download some apps and poke around in there. So, uh, Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, anytime you want to come on, you're you're absolutely welcome. Um, where can people go to find you? We mentioned your blog. So like, where, where do you prefer okay, people I've, go? I've got, I've got a whole bunch of sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, our, our, our USA Today site would be tech.usatoday.com. Mm-hmm. My video blog is jeffersongram.wordpress.com, and my photography blog is grahamandgrahamphotography.com. Grahamandgrahamphotography.com. And that's it, it with an A-N-D, yes. And you're on I Twitter. do that with my son, so that's, he's, the, he's the other Graham. You're on Twitter as well, right? I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm pretty much everywhere. And you just go by Jefferson Graham everywhere, right? Uh, pretty much. Awesome. Well, Jefferson, again, thank you for coming on the show, and uh, good luck with everything. And um, I'll be checking the mail for the iPad that you're going to send me. Um, <laughs> you know, right. You could just FedEx that overnight to me, you know. Uh, well, yeah, I'm actually, I'm definitely going to do that, and just remember what date it is today when you're recording this. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Jefferson. Thank you. And that was Jefferson Graham of USA Today. If you want to learn more about him, just head over to twiplog.com and we'll have links to his presences in the show notes or just go to usatoday.com and you'll find him or just Google him because he's all over the place. Just Google Jefferson Graham and you'll, uh, you'll find all of his online presences. Now we're going to jump into listener questions. The first one I'm going to throw to you, Joseph. Take it away. All righty. So question number one from David Keyes. It's a long question. Bear with me here. It's my wife and I are going to South Africa in late July for 10 days, three of which will be on safari. I'm planning on renting a good long lens for the trip, but I'm at a loss as to which way to go. I need your help. Based on pricing and other reviews, I've boiled it down to the three possibilities. The Nikon 80 to 400 F 4.5 to 5.6, a Sigma 50 to 500 F 4.5 to 6.3, which has image stabilization, and a Nikon 7200 F 2.8 with a 1.7 or 2.0 teleconverter. Says I'm going to be shooting with a D300 and was planning or hoping to get beanbags as support, um, although I'll take recommendations. Okay, so which lenses? So, you know, Sigma has been has been getting a lot of good reviews lately. Um, it says right here this lens has been too new for any decent reviews, so he can't he doesn't know for sure on there. But um, I'm I've never been a fan of third party glass. I'll be honest there. I'm a Canon shooter and I like Canon glass, but I am saying that kind of out of out of you know old prejudices. I don't uh, haven't used anything lately. However, that said, while 500 millimeters sounds really nice, 500 at 6.3 is really slow. I mean, that's a really slow lens. And granted, if he's on Safari, you might be in some pretty good strong light. But if you know, I would think at that point, if you even get some bad cloud cover, you're going to end up um, cranking up the ISO to get a decent shot. Um, so I don't know if I'd go for that one. That that just seems like a little bit of too much in one lens. 50 to 500 is such a massive range. That just seems a little bit too much for me. Um, so then that boils down to the other two, Nikon 80 to 400 or 7200 with the teleconverter. Uh, the 7200 2.8 is going to be a great lens, right? The 
um, gives you a nice shallow depth of field. That is your standard workhorse photojournalism lens. It's a beautiful lens. You put on a 2.0 teleconverter, and now you're looking at 140 to 400 at 5.6. So you're pretty much at the same range as that other 80 to 400, 45 to 5.6. I would argue that the 7200 without the teleconverter is going to give you a better image when you don't have that teleconverter than the 80 to 400 would. So I think my choice on those would be the 7200 2.8 uh, with the teleconverter for when you really need it. And since you're shooting on a D300, that's a crop sensor um, lens, a uh, crop sensor body. I'm guessing 1.6. I don't know. I'm not real familiar with the Nikons, but it's probably around a 1.5 or 1.6. So yeah. you're adding, you know, 50 or 60% to 1.5. Okay. So that means that your 7200 just became a, um, oh, quick math, what, 100 and something to 300 lens. So, um, yeah, I'd go with that 7200 2.8 and then the teleconverter on top of it. That would be my recommendation. All right, cool. That's a that's a wonderful answer. All right, next next question is going to go to you, Aaron. You want to take this one? All right, Scott McNell asks, um, I'm a longtime Canadian listener of your show, and I really enjoy what, uh, what's broadcast. My question is about photo books in the market. I'm asking your opinion on a thorough book to help uh, an amateur photographer you have a photography book recommendation. My preference would be one that offers project ideas based on the topics to help guide toward understanding the topic. Personally, I I don't have a whole lot of books um, in this area uh, that I've dealt with personally, but two came to mind that I do own, and I thought I would toss them in here. Uh, one of them is, it doesn't quite fit your needs, but I just think every uh, photographer really ought to read it because I find it incredibly inspiring. And that's uh, Joe McNally's uh, Moment It Clicks. And uh, I love that book. Those of you, uh, you know, on video here, you know, here's the cover. So hold it up. Um, and we've interviewed uh, uh, Joe a couple times. Uh, Frederick did one with him probably last year sometime. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually interviewed him right when that book came out uh, fairly early on in, in Twip's life. Yep. So uh, you can look back on those and see that. But to, to fit what you're looking for more, again, this is not a super deep book. Um, and I forget how I ended up with this. It's a book by, from Jim Krause, K-R-A-U-S-E. It's called The Photo Idea Index. And, uh, you know, the form factor of the book, it's kind of like, um, uh, I think of those uh, those nature books like, uh, you know, bird identification guides and so on, It's, it's or a travel guide. Uh, it's a softback book with a plasticky cover and, uh, you know, it's, it's taller than it is wide. Um, but uh, what this does, every single uh, page or, or pair of pages in this book is, a, is an idea. It's, it's, it's meant to inspire you to run out and do all kinds of different things. So I'm flipping through this book. Um, this page here is on positioning. There's some discussion and there's you know, three sample shots here of, of shooting a subject outside in, in three distinctly different positions in the frame. Uh, there's a thing called Ugly is Beautiful. That's kind of a theme to go shoot for. Um, you know, play with fire is one of them, light play. Uh, every one of these gives you some example photos, talks about a technique or a concept, um, does get a little bit technical in parts. And uh, again, mostly it's meant when you're, when you're at that point, when you're kind of sitting around and you want to shoot, and you just don't have that inspiration. The whole idea behind this book is to grab it, flip to a section, find something you find interesting, go out and challenge yourself with it and, you know, learn a good bit from the book, but also from the process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. It's uh, you know, I, when I do photo walks and and that sort of thing locally here, um, one of the things I like to convey is, um, it's it's frustrating to go on a photo walk someplace kind of cool looking, like some neighborhood you hadn't been in before, without some sort of theme in your brain about what you want to shoot. So just going right. there to take random pictures of different things is is a little difficult and challenging, but it's more fun if you think of a certain thing, like whether it be a color, a, some sort of 
object like i'm going to take photos of street signs in this location you know that kind of thing so constraining yourself and allowing your creativity to sort of you know focus down and burn a hole rather than just warm up the paper is uh is is probably the good way to go i mentioned at the opening of the show when you're asking if i'd been doing your shooting uh one of my more recent shoots was uh, colonial williamsburg which is about three and a half hours three hours or so from where i live it's one of my favorite places in the world. I mean, I absolutely love that uh, Williamsburg and I have all my life. Um, and I've, I've done photography there quite a bit in past years. It's just whatever you know struck me on that visit. But I decided this last time I was there um, that for the coming year, I'm going to begin going back to Williamsburg with great frequency throughout the year. I mean, even if it's a day or a weekend or whatever. And with each visit, I'm going to focus on a whole different topic or a certain theme. So I want to focus on people, you know, people in costume and so on that are there. I want to focus on certain aspects of the architecture on a trip. Yep. I want to focus on, you know, something that may be seasonal here or there. But not that I won't shoot other things and, you know, and beautiful things of the moment. But I do want to start returning and making multiple trips and, and having a goal for a certain concept or theme for each trip just yep. to see what I end up with in a year's time. You know, yeah, we'll and you had, to, you had to do together. something similar to that, Aaron, when you went to uh, – when you shot the uh, Barack Obama's inauguration, right? Because there was a million photographers out there and a million people and a million different things to shoot. So right. you, could, you could either choose to just be completely overwhelmed or – Mm-hmm. niche down and and focus and on you know literally and figuratively on uh, on a certain topic is that is that right. how you handled that event I, I did but you know that was also a matter of placement too um i mean i i was on the lawn but i wasn't like sitting there in front of barack obama by any means he was still at a pretty good distance um and i was glad to be there so my immediate focus i took wide shots of the event itself and and there's certainly some where you can certainly see the the inaugural uh, ceremony mm-hmm. but my major focus at that point was the people that were around me because i was watching i was just noticing throughout that there were people all around me having all different types of reactions to it i mean some people were crying some people were laughing some people were cheering some people were just listening intently all those different faces and people reactions became what I focused on for it. And, and that's you know, the majority of what I got out of that, uh, of that particular shoot. All right, guys, let's roll through the picks of the, the week pretty quickly. So we don't stretch this out too long. Joseph, you want to take the first one? Sure thing. So my pick of the week is a bag called the Goboda bag. And Goboda is uh, something what they call a lens bag. It's not a regular camera bag. It's not meant to carry all of your gear. And I picked this up before my last trip to Asia. Um, and the reason I got this is I've always been faced with this challenge where I, if I'm carrying a lot of gear, I like to travel with my Pelican case, right? It's really hard case, um, you know, obviously very protective. And if I do have to check my bag, which happens you know, quite often, then I know it's going to be relatively secure. Uh, the problem, of course, is when you get to your location, the Pelican is not something you want to drag around with you. So you need another smaller bag to carry stuff around. And I tried working with some backpacks, some of the you know really large backpacks to carry all your gear. But then again, you've got too much gear to carry around for a, a simple shoot or a photo walk or something like that. So I picked up this Boda bag. Um, again, goboda.com. And it is a bag designed to carry a couple lenses, a flash, and a spare body off of the uh, off of the off of the camera. You can't really put the camera and the lens on and stick it in there. You need to separate things, but that's fine because it's just meant to carry the little bits in a in an easy over the shoulder bag. And I was actually able to take that bag and put that inside of my Pelican along with some other gear. So I kind of had the best of both worlds. And in fact, it came in really handy when I was returning from Asia, and they did make me check my Pelican case. And obviously, I didn't want to put all my gear underneath, so I just opened up the case, pulled out the Boda bag, made sure my most critical gear was in there, and shoved the rest under the plane. Worked out really well. 
Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, Joseph, you've always been sort of the uh, – every time I talk to you, you have a different bag configuration I going know. <laughs> I know. You're like you know Iron what? Man I'm, with bags. <laughs> and the sad thing is I'm, I'm leaving for, um, for Shanghai on Monday, a week from today, and I'm considering another bag. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> Joseph, it's I, like I think addiction. someone needs a bag intervention here. You gonna, <laughs> intervention. You're going to come into a room and all your right. friends and family will be there and we're going <laughs> to – going to take you away from all that so. it's never well, this is right a photographer thing, disease, every though, trip really is. Is. it is it, it's it's a total disease there's just there's never the right bag for everything there's always a different reason to have a different bag for a different use so mm-hmm. <sighs> classic classic addict sentiment <laughs> <laughs> and you can stop buying bags anytime you want right Joseph? just one more <laughs> just one more <laughs> just one more all right aaron what's your what's your pick of the week um i'm gonna go with uh, the camera connection kit for the ipad uh, which uh, I'm actually finding uh, to be even more useful than I anticipated. Um, and I suspect, of course, as developers get in the game and Apple keep making updates, we're going to see more and more capabilities. But, um, and I'll try to kind of cater to both our live watchers and our listeners here in the process. But uh, basically, Apple, for $39, ships you these two little tiny white uh, devices that plug into the um, you know the ubiquitous docking port on the bottom. It's the same as every other iPod and iPad and iPhone. It's been released for years now. Uh, one of them is for SD cards directly, and that's the one I'm holding up here in video. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have an SD card, you just pop that right in. You pop it in the bottom of the uh, iPad. Um, I do not shoot with SD cards. Um, the particular model Canons I use continue to use CFs, which is fine by me. Yep. My particular approach here, um, I have another little one of these devices in the kit, but this one has the USB port on it. The idea here is that it's a direct camera connection, uh, which works fine. But the approach I'm taking is I'm just using a USB cable out of that straight into my Lexar uh, UDMA CF oh, card reader. So you can, oh, you can plug it into a CF card reader and bring your CF cards. Okay. Now, I've heard there's a couple readers or cards that sometimes won't work because they may draw a little more power than the iPad wants to put out. But I have not had that problem with a couple different model cards and with this reader so far. So uh, just to show you very quickly, um, I've got them all tethered together. And I just pop this uh, into the bottom of the iPad, and mm-hmm. you'll notice in a moment when it wakes up the uh, wakes up the card reader here, which is about to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there it is. It launches the built-in photo software oh, look that, at that comes with the iPad, and it starts to load the pictures. It's going to give me all the previews. So here they come. So here come all my little previews, which I can go through and you know scroll through like normal. Um, so what I do that now is I just go through and I, I touch these. And as I'm touching them, I don't know if you can see, but there's yeah. little uh, blue check marks appearing. And then I hit the import button in the corner. And I can choose to import them all or import selected ones. So I'll say selected here. And it's now worrying back through that set. And um, actually, yeah. And uh, it's going to pull in those particular pictures and it's going to put them in their own little dated photo group within the photo app. That's um, crazy. I got to go. So, I'm stopping by the Apple store on the way back home and I'm getting that. <laughs> so, well, Aaron, my, my question for you is on that, uh, in the specs, I was reading the specs for, for I think it was either that camera connection kit or the iPad itself, but it was saying that um, there's raw support there. In fact, and, yes. and a friend of mine uh, was telling me that, Topher Martini was also telling me that uh, the iPad supports raw. Are you are those raw photos that we're looking at on your screen there? These are, those are JPEGs? 20, 21 point some megapixel Canon 5D Mark II raw images. That just and that was my happy. worry when I first ordered it was, you know, that's a 25 megabyte file and a lot of data. I mean, one of these opened up in Photoshop as 107, 108 megabytes worth of data. Now, I can guarantee you it is not 
processing the raw image in yeah. its entirety. It is probably dealing with the embedded JPEG. And those who follow me on Twitter, the day this came in, there was this huge Twitter discussion I ended up having as I as I played with it and tweeted about you know the process and speculating about what it was interpreting and so on. Um, that said, it does a very very nice job. Um, I mean, the images are probably the embedded JPEG that are in there, but they're certainly much higher resolution than the screen of the iPad. I can zoom in nicely. And my approach to this, I mean, this is a 32-gig iPad. It's got a ton of media on it, so I only ever have a couple of gigs free anyway. So by no means am I using this to download my photos in the field to carry around. That's still the job of probably like my little Epson P3000 photo tank. Um, What this is for me is the ability to pull out those shots that I'm just dying to see right away while I'm traveling um, because I now have a, you know, internet connected device with me like this without having to take my laptop. Uh, I can still do maybe a little basic editing with some of the third party apps that that people have already put out. Uh, I could upload shots, you know, to share online while I'm on the road. So the whole goal here for me is to, uh, to not have to carry my laptop with me on the road, except when I know I need to do hardcore editing or process a lot of images or I'll be gone for a very long time. So now I can come, and I've done it for two trips so far, I can comfortably travel with the camera, the iPad, and this little kit, my P3000, and no laptop going with me at all. Awesome. That's great. Um, I did a shoot just the other evening, and, and the group I was shooting for wanted to see some of the images. Rather than you know holding the camera up and showing it on the three-inch screen on the back of the camera, it only took me a couple of minutes to pull the select shots in, and they were looking at them on this you know beautiful nine-and-a-half, ten-inch screen on the iPad. That's wonderful. I'm getting that. That's, that's Let me it. ask you, Aaron, if, if you shoot RAW plus JPEG, do you know, does it show up as two separate files on the screen there so you can select just the JPEG to download? You know, I'm glad that you asked that. I wish I'd had time to test it. It's one of the things I tweeted about a week or so ago was that I'm as soon as I get a chance, and I'll do it this week, I'm going to really try all the bounds. I'm going to try RAW plus JPEG. I've been doing just pure RAW, but I'm going to try the different RAW plus JPEG options and see whether the image I get is any different, what's imported, if it's any different in the process. Cool. Well, it probably will be a little bit different. Um because the the way that the camera interprets the raw to give you the JPEG file versus what Aperture or Lightroom whatever else is going to give you, it will be a bit different. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm just curious whether the raw the, the JPEG sample it pulls out from that raw to use on the iPad, whether that's going to be the same regardless, or whether it will actually extract the embedded JPEG. And, mm-hmm. and my 5D Mark II will allow me to put three different resolution JPEGs in there. You know, for the raw plus JPEG mode. So mm-hmm. again, I'm curious to see if that impacts things. But to those three different resolutions do as well. All right, Aaron. So, what, what's the uh, what's the price on that, real quick? Twenty nine, twenty nine to thirty nine. I believe it's twenty nine now. That I think about it, twenty nine ninety five, and All it right. comes with the two adapters: the USB adapter, which works with a card reader or a camera, and the SD adapter. And so, those of you with SD cards, you have less to carry even than this. I can afford that. All <laughs> right, uh, and my pick of the week is something interesting. I sort of teased this on Twitter a little bit before the show, but I am actually kicking off a new initiative, a new project. Um, it's a uh, marketing company that I'm starting and that will be launching at the beginning of next month. And it's called MediaBytes.com. MediaBytes.com. So go check that out. And uh, it's not launched yet. It's still being built. It's under construction. So head over to the site and sign up for the list. And I'll let you know when it goes live. And I'm also giving all the early subscribers um, a magical uh, guide that we're putting together on uh, social media marketing and all that. So MediaBytes.com is a marketing firm for creative people that helps creative people get the word out on Twitter and Facebook and all that. So sort of a next generation marketing agency. So be sure to check that out. MediaBytes. Congratulations, Frederick. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. It's been in the works for a while now for actually 
almost, you know, uh, let's just say a while. It's been in the works. So we're finally at the point where we're ready to pull the sheets off and make it go live. So the first step was today, putting that page up and, and giving folks a sneak peek of what's going to be coming. And then June 1st, the site will launch. Along the way, between now and June 1st, there'll be little breadcrumbs and things like that. Uh, but uh, just stay tuned and uh, wish me luck. Awesome. You keep this up, Frederick. You're going to have as many email addresses as me. I only have one. It's Frederick at Frederickman.com. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I share that publicly, so it's okay. <laughs> All right. Um, cool. All right. Well, we're, we're down to the end of the show. So, Aaron, uh, I'll let you go first since folks haven't talked to you in a while. Where, where can we uh, find you online and keep up with all this cool stuff you're doing and Twittering about and all that? Well, same places as always. Um, my uh, Twitter feed is Half Press, H-A-L-F-B-R-E-S-S. And my blog, which, again, has been rejuvenated a great deal since I was last on the show, is at uh, halfpress.com, H-A-L-F-B-R-E-S-S.com. And uh, I am blogging on it a lot more frequently now, and it covers a lot of topics. I mean, it's not just photography, it's technology, but also the merger between technology and photography wherever possible. I love that. That's cool. All right, Joseph, uh, where are you at online? You can find my photography work online at photojoseph.com, and all of the Aperture goodness is at apertureexpert.com. Excellent. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van, you can find me at frederickvan.com and now um, mediabytes.com, my other presence. And if you want to follow the show, of course, you can follow the show at twiplog.com and we're on Facebook. So please become a fan. I hope they change that fan thing. I think they're changing it. So please become a fan of of the show on Facebook and join us because we we have lots of lively conversations going on there. And then also, finally, uh, we have a a very lively Flickr group. So just go to Flickr and search for the group This Week in Photography and uh, you'll see thousands and thousands of images from your fellow Twippers sitting right in there. So... And with that, we're at the end of the show. It is time for you, Twippers, to take that lens cap off. 